0: I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Luke 19. Luke 19. If you grew up as a child in the church in the United States, sometime in the past 70 years, let's just say, there's a halfway decent chance that you grew up singing the children's song Zacchaeus. Both as a child, and then I remember being as a teen helper, uh, helping lead the singing in a five-year-old Sunday school class. The song about Zacchaeus was always one of my personal favorites. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior, I'm not going to do the motions, pass that way. (laughs) He climbed up in the tree, and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down, for I am going to your house today. On one occasion, I remember having to explain to one of the five-year-old children that this song had no relationship to the little piggy that went wee, wee, wee (laughs) all the way home. Indeed, I even tried this week to look up the authorship of this song. Who is responsible for such a great hymn of the faith? Alas, it's anonymous. But while the song is probably best suited for teaching young children, it is wonderfully accurate as far as it goes in describing Luke 19. But what the song does not do for us is complete the circuit, telling us how this story ends and why it is significant that Jesus stopped on the Jericho Road and called yet another Unlikely sinner to saving faith. And instead of writing a second verse together this morning to that hymn, let's simply dive into the passage ourselves and complete the circuit of why Luke intends to build us up and encourage us today with this story. As we've considered last week, the gospel writer Luke has been busy detailing the life and ministry of Jesus and his disciples over the past. Ten chapters or so, describing person after person whom Jesus calls to follow him and to be his disciple. Many of whom do not fit the categories of people you would expect. As we described last week, those who are sick and infirmed and marginalized or hated, despised people. To these people, Jesus offers eyes to see the kingdom of heaven. Last week we saw him considered a blind man whose vision, physical and spiritual, was restored, resulting in a contagious praise that glorified the Father. But in the account just prior to the blind man, and I'd I'd invite you to just be situating yourself with where we are in your Bibles here, Jesus makes clear to the rich young ruler in Luke 18, 18 18-30, that even with his impressive law-keeping resume, his love for great wealth and the earthly comforts that are provided by them were actually blinding him from true spiritual sight. And ironically, Luke demonstrates how even a beggar in extreme poverty is able to see more clearly And enjoy life more truly and fully than even this powerful young man who has it all. Now, The story of the rich young ruler, however, leaves us with a pretty bleak picture of anyone with wealth being able to enter the kingdom of heaven. And this was the exasperated reaction of Jesus' hearers when he told this man to go sell all that he had and to give his wealth to the poor in exchange for heavenly treasure. Who then can be saved? The crowd says. Sheesh, where are we supposed to go? Jesus' response, what is impossible with man is possible with God. The story of Zacchaeus shows us what happens when the God of the impossible, from our perspective, chooses to seek and to save a wealthy scumbag, not merely another wealthy law-keeping individual who's just a bit more well-adjusted to how to acclimate to a life of luxury. It's not what we have. If a social pariah like Zacchaeus the tax collector can receive God's salvation, there's most certainly hope for every one of us here this morning. So before we consider the story in more detail, would you bow with me in prayer? Our Lord, would you open our eyes that we might truly see? Would you allow our hearts to, as Luke will later write in verse 24, as Jesus himself explains the glories of who he is as the fulfillment of all the words of the prophets and the testimony and witness of your holy scriptures, that in Him we see most clearly for this life and for the life to come. And we pray that our hearts would burn within us at the joy it is to see Jesus. Help us to do that now. In Christ we pray. Amen. We begin the story. The stage is set in the opening four verses. We see Jesus here seeking and saving, a dishonest swindler, that is Zacchaeus. We see in verses 1 through 4 a curious perspective. As the journey moves ever closer to Jerusalem, this final leg of Jesus' journey, he enters Jericho shortly after healing the blind beggar and no doubt creating an even greater swell of onlookers who are attracted to his exciting miracles and profound teaching. We see in verses 1 and 2 here the description of Zacchaeus. And only in the Gospel of Luke do we have this story of Zacchaeus. So in verses 1 and 2 we read, He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. So Luke arrests our attention with this word, behold, making sure we make clear notice of this new and important character, that has now entered the scene. Verse 2 continues, he was a chief tax collector and was rich. Just in case we didn't pick up on that, he was rich. This is the only description, the only time the description of a chief tax collector appears anywhere in the scriptures or anywhere in in the common literature of the day. It's the only instance So we can deduce a particular hierarchy among the tax collector guild, of which Zacchaeus was a recognized leader. And borrowing the the stigma attached to the tax collectors, we can imagine Luke's audience hearing something like the difference between working for Al Capone and being Al Capone. This majorly ratcheted up who this individual was. Because in the first century, tax collectors were a, descri- a, a, a despised group of crooks. They were hired tax farmers working in conjunction with the hated Roman government. They were, as one man writes, religious and political traitors to Hebrew society. Their testimony in court was forbidden because they were known liars and they were barred from holding any public office in any capacity. They could not, they should not be trusted, since they were this despised band of thieves who, could, who made their fortunes extorting not just some other group of people, but their own fellow citizens. But perhaps Zacchaeus had heard word that among other things Jesus was known for, he was often derided for being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Was this because Jesus knew how to play both sides of the aisle? He had an ulterior motive, where he knew how to say enough to keep the crowds following him, but he also knew who the real power players of society were, the people with influence, the people with money. Is this him doing a kind of a both-and thing? Zacchaeus is just downright intrigued. He may have had personal friends. He may have had employees under him who spent time with Jesus. I'd invite you to turn to chapter 5 for just a moment. Let's read Luke 5, verses 27 to 32. This is an important backdrop. We might rightly suspect that Zacchaeus may well have heard rumors of people in his very profession who were treated unusual, in an unusual manner by Jesus. So in Luke 5, 27 to to 32, we read, And after, after this he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. for a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So perhaps this is the kind of thing that Zacchaeus had heard word of. In fact, there's one of our own traveling with him everywhere. One of his own disciples is a member of our guild. Well, we continue reading, if you turn back to chapter 19. We see the indignity of Zacchaeus, verses 3 and 4. Verse 3, And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, because he was small in stature. Now just like in the story of the beggar, the crowd is again portrayed as a deterrent to the one who seeks to see Jesus. It's a little comical how one minor feature of Luke's story, Zacchaeus' height, is probably the most memorable description of the man. Nevertheless, one can imagine Zacchaeus had lived with this reality his whole life. It's not as if it hit him that day. Oh, I think I'm kind of shorter than these other folks. No. Whenever a crowd would gather, we can imagine he would either channel his inner Napoleon and force his way up to the front of the crowd, or he'd figure out a way and just assume this isn't worth it, I'm going to be on my way. Whatever the case, in this circumstance, he does something unusual. In verse 4, so he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Zacchaeus was far too wealthy, far too important to be running and climbing like a little child. In that day and age, this would have been as unthinkable as the father in the story of the lost son in Luke 15, who sees his son coming back, taking off and running down the road. (gasps) That never happens. A patriarch. A wealthy man like him running? Oh, the indignity of that. But what makes it worth it? The very thing that he's pursuing makes all of that run to the side. So we see similarly, even though such undignified actions as running and then climbing a tree would have been beneath someone, like Zacchaeus by doing so Luke gives us insight into just how badly Jesus or Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus and from this curious perspective in this low hanging branches of a sycamore tree he awaits with anticipation as Jesus approaches as a small point of application before we continue Are there cultural customs of our day that we perhaps value more than seeking Jesus and honoring Him? I know my own heart always wrestles with this when it comes to evangelism. Like it or not, deliberate, courageous conversations. Yes, of course, the kind that needs skillful, timely, wise uh, approaches But those kinds of conversations with people who are not Christians about spiritual things can oftentimes breach that unspoken wall of respect with a person in society. It changes things quickly. If a person is not understood to be a lifelong friend or a licensed therapist, counselor, or priest, deep questions about spiritual things are oftentimes walled off. You're not supposed to go there. Risking indignity, situations like that, when necessary, is worth it. If it means honoring the Savior, risking indignity is worth it when a conscience is so heavy it's about to explode due to the guilt of sin, which is very likely the condition we find Zacchaeus. May God help us forget ourselves in order to get a clear gaze at our Savior. On verses 5 through 7, we find a very determined house guest. In verse 5, we read of Jesus. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Zacchaeus thinks he's the one seeking Jesus, but he's soon going to discover that Jesus is actually the one seeking him. How Jesus knows Zacchaeus' name is a mystery that Luke doesn't care to explain to us, but it's clear Jesus knows Zacchaeus. Jesus' words about going to his house strike us, if we're reading this from a modern lens, as as rude. Perhaps you We're raised as I. You don't ask to go in someone else's house. That's rude. If We're out in the neighborhood or something like that. That's how I was instructed. Maybe that's a southern thing. I don't know. But you read this and you think, well, that's presumptuous. That's a little bold, even if it is Jesus. But Jesus speaks words here of conviction rather than presumption. By stating his intent to not merely pause on his journey to have a conversation with this notorious sinner, but to go to his house, wow, that's to dignify this man in a way that is stunning. And Jesus states, what does he say? I must, I must, the text says, stay at your house today. As one author writes, the must here implies a divine necessity. Of all the gospel writers, Luke was most fond of the divine must. In Luke 4, Jesus says he must preach the good news of the kingdom of God in other towns, for he was sent for that purpose. In Luke 17, Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation, just as in the days of Noah. In Luke 24, the angels remind the ladies at the tomb, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. As important as all these divine necessities are, that Luke wants us to know, so too was the divine necessity that Jesus go to Zacchaeus's home I must go to your home he says We read in verses 6 or 7 so he hurried and came down and received him joyfully And when they saw it they all grumbled He has gone in to be a guest of a man who is a sinner Zacchaeus is amazed I mean, the most famous prophet of his lifetime wants to come to his house. Think of that. Perhaps he's thinking the stories are true. He does care about people as gross and despised as us. Like me. Maybe he's long contemplated what his life may look like if he were ever to forsake his underhanded profession. And he's coming to recognize the unmistakable reality that he's being pursued by the loving compassion of none other than the Son of God. And he's swallowing hard because he knows today's the day. I wonder, I think today's the day I'm about to give it up. And relinquish a life consumed by my lying, swindling, greedy ways. But I think this Jesus character is worth it. So in chapter 5 and chapter 15, we're told of the negative press about Jesus. That he's a fraud because he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners. So here comes the crowd again, probably thinking, oh, We've got new information. Here he goes again. Look at what he's doing now. I wonder, as there were religious crowds in Jesus' day, exercising their powerful influence, so too there are religious crowds in our day. Pastor Miller has often told the story that 30-plus years ago, he was scorned, essentially, by religious gurus, specialists, research analysts, and the like, for having no sense at all for how to reach a lost world for Christ if he chose not to embrace a seeker-sensitive philosophy of church ministry and maintained a fairly well-worn approach of just expositing the Bible, of reverential worship, and developing a culture of pervasive prayer. The crowds were loud and sweeping in their assessment that the seeker-sensitive movement that finally asked believers, how do you want church to look? If we'd only humbly asked them how they would shape it, then they would all come and they'd all be saved. This was the belief. This was the way in which the United States would be won to Christ and the Great Commission would be f- fulfilled. I'm not exaggerating. This was the literature of the day, not that long ago. Just a few decades ago, it was the emergent church movement that was going to set things in order. In missions right now, it's what's known as the disciple-making movement, which is doing much to obscure a clear biblical vision of what the church even is. There are some religious crowds in our present day that believe churches should be little more than political rallies, stirring up the faithful, So our great nation can be captured, government and all, in the name of Christ. So Judeo-Christian laws can once again govern our land, and we can purge the crazies from their places of power. Now, we should, as we have this morning, pray for God's common grace to be shed abroad as widely as possible, as Christians exercise a salt and light presence in a nation moving further and further from God's laws. And we should, like the Apostle Paul demonstrates, exercise our political rights afforded to us, providentially by God, to help stave off the decay of a culture that is in need of voices willing to kindly say, excuse me, but the emperor has no clothes here. That type of a voice. Indeed, we need courage to graciously resist a swiftly changing world that feigns inclusivity while demanding conformity to a new moral ethic that's diametrically opposed to the rule and reign of King Jesus. And yet, to so overprivileged societal change, the kind that we can see and touch and feel This is a well-documented trap by which many Christians through the ages have lost their way and have actually lost a grasp on what the gospel and the mission of the church even is. We preach Christ crucified. Folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. So be watchful, brothers and sisters. For the influence of religious crowds, astronomically multiplied in our digital age, I should say, whose ambassadors and representatives want to clearly persuade us with an ever-changing narrative, usually by capitalizing on some legitimate element of truth, but almost always exaggerating certain things to the neglect of other things. And very often, for these crowds and their spokespeople, rather than having faith in the power of Christ to save sinners like Zacchaeus, they disciple ordinary Christians into how to become cynics and critics who over time capably justify how to live their lives avoiding the Zacchaeuses of the world altogether. May God help us learn something, not only from Jesus, not only from Zacchaeus in the story, but Luke puts forward the crowd as its own character that we must learn from. Now we see in verse eight the dramatic transformation in the heart of Zacchaeus. Verse eight we read, and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, "Behold, Lord." the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Here's where Zacchaeus parts way with the rich young ruler. Whereas the young ruler with extreme wealth became very sad when Jesus told him to part with his wealth. Zacchaeus stands up, presumably because he was reclining at table with Jesus in his home. And with resolve, Zacchaeus states his willingness to go to any lengths necessary to make things right. There are two groups of people whom Zacchaeus identifies as recipients of his wealth here. The poor and those victimized by his extortion enterprise, we might say. Half of all he owned is about to be donated to the poor, and with the other half, he plans to make restitution. Perhaps Zacchaeus is thinking and is aware of Exodus 22, which states that if a man steals a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay four sheep for a sheep. Some speculate that Roman law stipulated that same degree of retribution that should be paid. But whatever the case, Zacchaeus is resolved to turn from his life of extortion and deceit in order to follow Jesus. This is a case study in what repentance looks like. Friends, why would a man who seemingly loves his wealth as much as Ebenezer Scrooge, why would he decide after one lunch meeting at his house to nearly part with Everything he has. I mean, on an earthly level, this makes no sense, right? Unless a sovereign God is powerfully at work in the soul of this man. And unless the person and work of Jesus who sits before him face to face is so extraordinarily wonderful that in his calculating he says, absolutely, he's worth it all. Zacchaeus' transformation teaches us that genuine repentance is not partial. It doesn't get a percentage of our hearts where we can wall off the rest. It's holistic. It is complete. Genuine repentance must deal with that which has the greatest hold on the heart. Genuine repentance must go there. be it money, be it security, safety, a career, sex, fame, popularity, influence, respect, family, children, leisure, hobbies, whatever the case. Our sovereign God will play second fiddle to none of these. In fact, he wants us to see how he satisfies us supremely so that those other gifts can be enjoyed secondarily in their rightful place. Well, this dramatic transformation within Zacchaeus reveals something undeniable, and that is the operation of God's saving and electing grace in the soul of society's outcast. So we see in verses 9 and 10, a display of sovereign grace. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Luke enjoys the use of the word today as well to arrest his reader's attention in order to indicate something dramatic and important has taken place. And after Jesus reads the Isaiah scroll in the synagogue in Luke 5, he states, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your midst. Jesus tells the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Today, salvation has come to Zacchaeus's home. And whether Jesus recognizes Zacchaeus' position of headship over his home, and in that sense salvation has come to his house, or whether intrigue with Jesus has so percolated within his home for quite some time, who knows, And perhaps Zacchaeus is the last to finally himself go check out what this is all about. We don't know precisely. But we do know as God's salvation has come. Which is why he may be appropriately called a son of Abraham. Remember Luke's description of John the Baptist in chapter 3? Where John tells the crowds, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. What is a child of Abraham? It is all who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ bearing fruits in keeping with repentance, evidencing, The work of the gospel in a soul. So the privilege of being named among the spiritual people of God, being a son or daughter of Adam, comes through faith and repentance in Jesus. Zacchaeus exhibits both of these in the story before us. And in verse 10, we're given a summary statement that helps us more clearly understand what's been taking place from the very get-go of chapter 19. Zacchaeus thinks he is the one seeking to see Jesus, but in verse 10, we now know it was Jesus who was seeking and saving this dishonest swindler. Zacchaeus now sees the operation of the Holy Spirit to draw this man's heart towards initially intrigue and questions about deep and important things, and eventually to saving faith and genuine repentance, an unmistakable display of the saving and electing and sovereign mercy and grace of God. The story of Zacchaeus is the sixth time tax collectors are referred to in this gospel, and in every case, it turns out really well for them all end in a positive manner with Jesus showing grace and mercy. Like the tax collector in the temple who could barely lift his head to heaven, muttering and beating his chest, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. This was glorious in the eyes of our Lord because it represented a sinner who realized they needed saving grace. Similarly, the story of Zacchaeus first and foremost reminds us of the mission of the Son of God, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, who came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, who came to seek and to save the lost. Can you relate to Zacchaeus today? as a person who is continually growing intrigued by Jesus, perplexed by His sayings, contemplating what it may look like for you to finally give everything, your whole heart, leaving nothing behind to pursue Him. No matter if you've grown up in the church your whole life, perhaps the sovereign God that we see on display in this passage is sweetly drawing you to faith today, regardless of your age. Stepping into the cleansing light of Jesus' mercy and grace may feel embarrassing or stinging in certain ways, but it brings a healing and joy to the soul for which there is no substitute. A powerful picture of repentance Is portrayed by the character Eustace in C.S. Lewis's book in the series The Chronicles of Narnia, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Eustace is a selfish, nasty, angry little boy who is easy to dislike. You just loathe the kid as you're reading through the story. He finds himself in this magical world of Narnia in which he's traveling upon a ship, the Dawn Treader. The ship docks on an island, and Eustace soon wanders off, foolishly, into a cave filled with treasure. Eustace is filled with delight, because finally he knows how he's going to finance his revenge. He's going to get the power and the money to be able to go after every single person that had wronged him, and in that, his wildest hopes and dreams have been fulfilled in this moment. Eustace does not realize this treasure belongs to a dragon. And after a while, Eustace falls asleep in a cave only to awaken to a terrible reality that the treasure has transformed him into a horrible dragon. And unable to communicate like before, he realizes he can't return to his ship because everyone's afraid of him and they'll try to kill him And so he soon realizes that the wealth and greed and power that his heart so wanted was the very thing that was now going to destroy him. Eustace knows that the great king of Narnia, Aslan, is his only hope. If the curse of the dragon that he'd become would ever be undone. So Aslan's tells him to strip down and plunge beneath the cleansing waters of a nearby pool. And realizing Aslan may be able to remove his dragon scales, Eustace tries himself to scratch them off all by himself. But it's of no use because the deeper he goes, the more he sees layer upon layer upon layer of dragon scales. It's so deep. So Eustace later retelling what happens next he in his own words says this I was afraid of Aslan's claws but I was pretty nearly desperate now the very first tear he made was so, or tear he made was so deep that it, it I thought it had gone right into my heart and when he began pulling the skin off it hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt Aslan peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was lying in the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobby looking than the others had been. Then he caught hold of me and he threw me into the water. And it startled me like nothing else, but only for a moment. And then I saw I'd been turned into a boy again. Lewis masterfully, he masterfully tells a story, no doubt, with his Christian concept of repentance somewhere in mind, the descaling scaling of Eustace, of his dragon-like skin, we see as what we possess as sinners, Children of Adam and Eve. That can only be removed through the cleansing work of Jesus Christ. It cannot be done with all the scratching and attempts on our own. He is our only hope. The German reformer Martin Luther famously posted on the door of the Castle Church at Wittenberg his 95 theses concerning issues that he wanted a hearing. His very first point was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Running to Christ initially for salvation or back to Christ for ongoing sanctification. We need the cleansing mercy of our Savior who came to seek and to save sinners like us. And we also need to march forward as Christ people, never forgetting our identity, that we as a church are comprised of one Zacchaeus after another. We are not a band of world-class professionals congratulating ourselves at every turn for not being Zacchaeus. And as such people, redeemed Refashioned and descaled, as it were, by our Lord. We move toward a world in need, trusting the power of Christ to seek and sovereignly save the lost, as we have the joy of faithfully sowing one gospel seed after another. May God help us to see the Savior more clearly increasingly forsake our old ways and to live in the joy of his mercy and compassion and grace let us pray our lord we come to you recognizing the point that luke makes can easily be obscured in our sinfulness we want to know the power of God's Son to save. We so easily admit to writing off certain people because of those boundaries or barriers that seem so difficult to break through. We confess a timidity that is simply sinful. Lord, we want to exhibit the kind of thirst and determination and pursuit of you exhibited by Zacchaeus. We are rightly instructed by his releasing of the very thing that had such an all-of-life control upon the man. Lord, there are those things within us. Help us by the power of your Spirit to see them. And may we most of all know that our Lord Jesus Christ has rescued us, and we pray for His refashioning grace as the scales continue to come off, as we continue to see Him as all glorious. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, and hearts ready and eager to obey. In Christ we pray. Amen.